build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at patagonia.com. Welcome to the Dirtbag Diaries, a duct tape and beer production, with additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. I was climbing in the Sierra this summer with my buddy Matt, and we had just finished climbing the Evolution Traverse in a day. And so we'd started climbing at like 3.30 that morning, and we were now like hiking back to our camp. It's like 10 o'clock at night, and we're both exhausted. We've covered tens of thousands of feet of climbing over like eight-mile ridge, and now this six-mile hike back to camp. We're both exhausted. And we're hiking up this hill, can't see that far, not only because it's dark, but it's also been really smoky. So there's this haze that's just kind of covering the entire forest. And I'm up ahead, and all of a sudden I hear Matt behind me say, Hey, Austin, is that you? And I stop, I turn around, it's what me? And he says, that. And, you know, I pause, I listen, I, I can't hear anything. I can hear some crickets maybe. And I'm like, what are you talking about? like, that whistling, is that you? And it immediately, just like that, all the hairs on the back of my neck just like stand up. It's like the chills down the spine, the whole deal. Because I can't hear anything, but he thinks he can. And if he's hearing whistling, that means that there's someone out there, like in the dark. <laughs> So I, I look around, you know, I, my, my headlamp just like, it's like flashing back and forth, like looking around the trees around us and yeah, I can't see anything. It's, it's super dark. I'm like, no, dude, there's nothing out here. Like, let's just keep going. So we keep hiking. We get like another little bit down the trail and he's like, dude, is that you, that whistling? And I pause and it, I mean, I was I was so sure, like, there's no way that there's anyone out there, like, in the middle of the Sierra on this random trail in the middle of the night. But just, like, I don't know, it's like the thought that there could be someone out there, like, beyond what you can see. You know, it's one thing if it was daylight and you could, like, look around and be a little bit easier to be like, oh, no, there's no one out there. But, I mean, when it's dark. Um, why, why do you think that's so terrifying? It's just the unknown. It's the fear of the unknown. There could be something out there. And there's just no way to tell. There is that moment where we kind of go and have like the lizard brain, where it's like all of a sudden it, it takes us down to this most basic elemental feel of like, I need to get out of here. Why do you think that happens in those situations? I mean, I think it's a just a natural human instinct. We don't really have any control over it. It's like if you're scared your brain's telling you to go. Do you think there was something out there? I don't know. Logically, I knew there was nothing out there. You know, I knew that we'd just been on the go all day 
and that Matt was just imagining this. We were just in the early stages of hallucination, basically. But even knowing that and being able to like recognize that in the moment and wanting to convince myself, oh, no, this is just a hallucination, it still didn't feel that way. You know, it still sent shivers down my spine when he said, you hear that whistling? And I like, you know, just my ears like opened up trying to hear it. And it's almost at a point where you start like wondering, wait, like maybe I do hear that. And then is it, is it there? Or are you just making it up because you want to hear it? You know, we spend all of our, our lives sort of shaping and harnessing the sort of, um, the logical, rational side of our minds. Yet, you know, there's powerful things in our sort of right brain animal kind of intuition. You know, there's millions of stories like that. There's something powerful there. Could it really be that we're just convincing ourselves that there is nothing out there? It's definitely possible that sometimes the logic goes too far when really there is something out there. And that's when you can just go down the rabbit hole of second-guessing yourself and, you know, (laughs) what's out there and what isn't kind of becomes hard to tell, especially when it's dark. Is there something out there? It's a question that lurks in the back of my mind and probably in your mind, too, because sometimes you just don't believe something is out there until it's right there. Today, we present Tales of Terror, two stories where imagination and reality can give you a really good scare. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. It was mid-September. Three weeks earlier, Joe Grant, a professional runner, had just returned from France, where he had run the 100-mile Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc. He didn't have a great race, so by the time he got home, he wanted some time alone on the trail, away from the scene of European ultra running. He decided he was going to run the Wonderland Trail, a 93-mile circumnavigation of Mount Rainier in a single push. This is a classic trail, and the plan was to do it unsupported, drive himself to the trailhead, carry all his own supplies, gels, a water bottle, and a headlamp, and try to be back at the trailhead in less than 24 hours. He set off running clockwise around the mountain. And so I started... I think about 4 a.m., but you start off and you're kind of in the woods and sort of classic Pacific Northwest type single track. And, and then you pop out and you start to get views of Mount Rainier. And so the whole time you're really on the flank of the mountain. So you really get to see quite a lot. And, and then even when you're in the trees, you kind of go in and out these sort of outcroppings and you can kind of, and with a full moon, I could pretty much see everything even at night, which is really cool. It was just kind of one of those days where... You know, it's just really all clicking and just like, man, I've, I've just, I've got this, you know, I'm less than 10 miles from my car and feeling really good. And just, I don't know, ne- nearly arrogantly, like I've laced this, you know, it's, it's, it really wasn't a big deal. And all of a sudden I, I turn around a corner and my, my headlight catches this pair of eyes And, and so I stop, and I, I mean, the mountain line's probably about six feet from me. It was, a, I don't know, 150 pounds maybe, sort of equal, <laughs> equal size, I guess. Um, so it's right off of the trail, and um, 
pretty tight single track, really dense foliage there. So it's a really kind of intimate moment where I just sort of standing there looking at the cat. And, but then of all of a sudden, the reality of the situation starts to creep in. And, I, you know, I start to associate images of what the line could do to me. And um, so I just kind of creep by as best I can. Um, and when I'm about 20 or 30 feet from, from the line, um, it sort of moves out into the trail. At that point, I'm just kind of yelling and putting my arms up, trying to make myself big. And it, it skimpers off into the bushes, which doesn't really reassure me much because I can't see it anymore. The anxiety sort of really hits you because you're not really sure what it's going to do. And so I sort of as a token gesture of, uh, of defense, I put my fanny pack that I was wearing with my gels around my neck. And then I grabbed a stick and just kind of started sort of thrashing the bushes around me and making noise and gradually started walking away from, from that area. And, and pretty soon after that, I got to this open area. I waited there for like, you know, a few seconds just to kind of see, you know, where it was. And, and sure enough, the, the cat was following me. And so it's it kind of this weird feeling because I was like, man, I'm making noise. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. And it's, it doesn't seem intimidated at all. It's stalking me now. It's following me. I crossed this little creek, I don't know, probably an hour or so in. It's a fairly substantial creek, and there were some, log, some logs across. It wasn't really a, a formal bridge and made it to this, this road. And I didn't see the, the mountain line for about 20 minutes. I thought that it might have just gone away. So I pulled out my map and I just kind of assessed. And I think I had five miles to go to my car, which was at the trailhead. And that was all on trail. Or I could take this road four miles to this campground. And for some reason, just kind of staying on the road sounded more appealing. And I know that mountain lions are really cautious hunters. And so it, I was sort of doubtful that it would just kind of charge at me, you know, on the road. As I'm doing this, the mountain lion sort of steps out from the trail and crosses the road about, yeah, 20, 30 feet in front of me. It stayed just sort of on the side of the road and kind of walked along with me so I could see it, you know, kind of go in and out of the shadows of the trees on the side of the road. And the main thing I can see is just its eyes. In that entire time, I probably traveled like four miles, three miles actually. And it took me, you know, over an hour and a half. I was, I was walking sort of as fast as I could that felt like I wasn't just kind of fleeing. And then Joe saw a car parked on the side of the road. I mean, once I saw the car, I was like, I don't care. I'm just, I'm just going to break into the car and figure that out in the morning. Because I just didn't really know what to do. I figured, like, the campground is still another couple miles at least. And um, I was just sort of fried, basically. Luckily, you know, I just started, yeah, knocking on the window. And this, this woman just opened the door. And I was like, I mean, I had a water bottle. And I was in running shorts and a running shirt and and was like 
two in the morning. I just didn't think that I looked very threatening. And I was clearly like, I was kind of explaining. I was like, there's a mountain lion. I'm being followed. Please let me in. She was just like, oh, let's check it out, you know? And so she got her headlamp and we were trying to, trying to see if, if we could still see it and, and we couldn't, you know? And so it's like, just, it came and it went. It's funny because once I got into the car, it all of a sudden hit me that I'd been running for about 20 hours. And so all the, the kind of aches and pains and fatigue and just everything just sort of hit all at once. And so she offered me some, some beer and some chips. And, and it was kind of funny because I remember she was like, oh, I don't know if this affects your run and your principles in terms of like, you know, not accepting aid on the trail or whatever. And I was just like, I'm fairly, you know, unconcerned about my run now I just I'm just really happy to be in this car now it's one of those moments where I like took two sips of the beer had a couple chips and was just like yeah I think I'm just gonna sleep in your car if that's all right and she was like sure you know if for some reason it just didn't feel weird at all the whole experience was so surreal and then in the morning she she took some photos and she's like I'm going back to the main lodge at the entrance if you want me to drop you there and I just didn't have it in me I just didn't want to you know even walk in that last five miles it just uh it just kind of cut me short there i was just like okay i that was enough excitement for the for the for the trip and you know for the first six months or so after that i mean i would definitely be a lot more skittish at night and sort of look around my shoulder quite a bit more and like you know i'd see like deer eyes and i was like oh that, that, that's no that's too high that's not that's a deer i think that what was pretty special about the whole experience was that the style that i chose to run around the mountain in was i didn't bring a lot of stuff so there's not much between me and the environment the elements so it it sort of lends itself to having a pretty raw, real experience. And in some ways, it's like, oh, well, you should have maybe taken something to protect yourself or whatever. And in other ways, I just, I really appreciated kind of having that vulnerability. I got back to this, to my car and actually went out and just kind of told the ranger what happened. And he was like, oh yeah, it happens all the time. Like, uh, Cats follow hikers, they're kind of curious, and they're like the headlamps and that sort of stuff. And then he says, like, I think in the entire history of Mount Rainier National Park, there's never been like a fatal mountain lion attack. So it's reassuring when you hear it then, but in the moment, you don't want to be that first statistic, I guess, you know. <laughs> So sometimes that very thing you've put into the back of your mind is actually out there. And Joe was lucky, if you can call it that, to see a mountain lion. We're just glad he didn't become a statistic. Up next, Rick Olson with his tale of being somewhere you don't belong. The sunlight was fading fast, 
Not that it ever broke into the rain clouds for more than 30 minutes, but now it was not only wet, but dark as well. It was the first day of a four-day, 68-mile canoe trip down Oregon's Sayusla River. Three friends and I were courageously attempting to paddle the coastal river to its mouth at the Pacific, the collective whitewater experience of an eight-year-old in boats equipped for an afternoon float on a lake. We'd already swamped our two canoes twice, trying to navigate Class II rapids, and the thought of encountering another was not only unappealing, but utterly ridiculous. So we made camp in what little space we had, a mossy clearing surrounded by sword fern and big leaf maples, hardly big enough for our two backpacking tents. A hundred yards away from camp, a railroad trestle crossed the Sayusla, bridging the gap between us and the rutted dirt road along the opposite side of the river. We rummaged for dinner supplies through what we thought was a dry bag. Over the course of the waterlogged day, the labels had worn off all the canned food, leaving our menu in the hands of fate. Chili and spaghetti actually sounded appetizing at the time, but no one wanted to slurp marinara a la carte the following night. As we attempted to decipher the contents through a ritualistic dance of shaking, juggling, and rolling, the unmistakable hum of an engine quickly grew louder and then louder until it became clear that the vehicle was barreling down the dirt road directly across the river from our campsite. Uninvited automobiles have always given me anxiety when camping. I could blame it on the notion that my communion with nature is being intruded upon. The honest truth is that it makes me feel vulnerable. So I instructed everyone to turn off their headlamps, cloaking us in darkness. Frantic toggling through luminosity levels ensued, and the last lamp clicked off just as the headlights met our camp from across the river. The crackling of the gravel began to wane and then ended abruptly, washing everything in red from the brake lights. The driver threw the truck in reverse and backed up 15 yards. A man stepped out, towering above the pickup as he walked towards the riverbank. You're somewhere you don't belong, the menacing silhouette bellowed across the grumble of the Sayusla River. He slammed the truck door, breaking our momentary trance, and took off without offering any more advice. Timidly, we abandoned the mystery meal on the stove, opting for the quicker option of sandwiching salami between two slices of wheat bread and retreating into our tents. Despite moving as fast as a Subway sandwich artist at lunchtime, we were still outside passing bread around when the pickup careened back around the corner, probably returning with friends up for some fun, I thought. I watched Peter, the only one of us who might be worth a damn in a brawl, clench his fists and wait for the truck to stop again. The driver fired three shotgun blasts and continued barreling down the road. What could that have been? It wasn't hunting season, at least not for wildlife. We wonder if it was a war cry, signaling an ambush of lunatics from all directions. At this point, our options were limited. We could hardly paddle the damn river in broad daylight, nixing any notion of navigating it at night, and the road was clearly a one-way route into the abyss. Our best bet, we decided, was to divvy up the liquor and wait out the night. My tentmate 
Porter and I sat in the relative comfort of our thin nylon shelter, passing a bottle of whiskey. You hear footsteps? Porter asked me. It's just the rain, I told him. It's just the rain. But every raindrop sounded like a footstep. I think about how the railroad trestle eliminated any barrier the river might have offered us and how easily the maniac could access our camp. Questions flooded my mind. What instrument would he be wielding? Would he actually make us squeal like pigs? But most importantly, how the hell had I forgotten a knife? Luckily, I had grabbed my pop's old hatchet in a last-minute packing frenzy. The thing was so damn dull, I could hardly slice my salami sandwich with it. I managed to doze as the night passed, coming to terms with whatever fate would greet me. Still, I'd awake heart racing. Hmm. Cardio workout mixed with sleep, I thought. I could be on to the next diet scam here. Go to sleep in fear. At that point, I was clearly searching for any sort of distraction until daybreak. When morning finally arrived, our morale rose with the sun. We were joking about never being so frightened by some raindrops and how surely we could have defended ourselves with the dull hatchet and a two-inch pocket knife that we had tucked beneath the wadded-up clothing we used for pillows. But before we finished laughing at ourselves, we were abruptly interrupted. Get out here! The unmistakable voice from the evening before had summoned... I was the one who had pointed my finger at this stretch of the river on the map and suggested that we attempt to canoe it all the way to the Pacific. Feeling responsible for our current predicament, I elect myself to meet our maker, but not before dragging Porter along with me. Tell my mother I love her, Porter said, quoting every damn adventure film ever released. We stumbled through the underbrush until we reached the railroad tracks. There... The man stood with Viking stature, restraining an equally large German shepherd by the collar. Got a dog? We shook our heads, and then he released the shepherd. Episodes of cops replayed in my head, perpetrators begging for mercy under the assault of police dog. Maybe I could outrun it. I glanced at my feet, realizing I was wearing sandals. I could hardly outrun a goat in sneakers, but maybe they'll run Porter. The shepherd was charging towards us, its tongue dripping with saliva, when the master announced that the dog was friendly. Friendly? I repeated, not yet allowing my muscles to relax. But before he could respond, the dog began licking my hands, tail wagging incessantly. The man approached. You guys scared me, he told us. My fear transformed to confusion and then frustration. I'd spent the night speculating about all the potential horror film scenarios that might await us. And Jay, a stout, six-and-a-half-foot-tall man with long blonde hair and a face that looked chiseled in granite, was telling us that we scared him. According to Jay, the Sayus Law was frequently abused by meth heads. Watching his own horror story unfold one of increasing intrusion and desecration of his favorite fishing holes, J 
Jay had no choice but to develop a persona akin to that of a villain in a Wes Craven film in order to protect his home. I complimented on his work, to which he offered me one last piece of advice. Next time, leave our headlamps on. Thanks to Austin, Joe, and Rick for sharing their tales of terror. We always love hearing what frightens dirtbags. Music today by David Beard, Sam Haynes, A Single Voice, Black Pistol Fire, and Earl Clifton Radio, all courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley. Support for the diary comes from you. Whether it's a submission for the shorts, a pledge contribution, a t-shirt order, or an email of thanks, you keep the diaries thriving. If you want to help, you can find all those necessary links at dirtbagdiaries.com. Please come visit and be a part of our community. The Diaries would not be possible without the good people at Patagonia. Their legacy collection includes iconic clothing from their first 40 years, but reinterpreted with modern materials like organic cotton and recycled polyester. Find it at patagonia.com. Thanks to Kuat for their unwavering support. They've added a sleek and slim new roof rack to their new lineup. See it at kuatracks.com. This is the little company that could. Additional support from New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to follow your folly. This episode of The Diaries was produced by Becca Cahal, Jen Altschul, and me, Fitz Cahal. As always, thanks for tuning in. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.